Hey everybody and welcome to the podcast. This is Sean Mills from HackMyHomestead.com and today is Thursday, February 8th, 2024. And today we're going to continue on our little journey about acquiring cheap off-grid land to homestead on. So today we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, geography and climate. Have you ever wondered why some places are super hot and other places are always cold? Why some places have forest while other places are desert? Well, that's how the that's because rather of the interaction between geography and climate. So today we're going to talk about specifically some different climates in the United States and how they might affect where you want to set up your homestead. And you know, you need to kind of think about the U.S. in some different regions and then also understand that within those regions there are you know different geographies and different climates but you know you can typically break the climates in the U.S. down to you know a few primary or kind of like macro climate areas so one of those is the northeast right so the northeast U.S. is mostly humid continental climate they have cold winters they have warm summers now, one of the things that will help you out there is you can grow. I mean, you've got a shorter growing season than some other areas, but tons of, you know, you can grow fall crops. You can grow winter crops. You can go grow spring crops. You can, you can grow things that take a bit longer, and, and you can, um, you know, most of the Northeast, you can plant directly into the ground is what I was trying to say. Um, now, cold winters can definitely be a hindrance, right? So something you need to think about is, you know, do the things that I want to grow or the area that I want to live, are they compatible with these colder winters? I've got a buddy that lives up in New Hampshire, and, um, you know, he's I'm always ta- telling him he needs to move down here to Tennessee, and he's always talking about how New Hampshire is so much better. And I actually was looking at New Hampshire in terms of, um, you know, like catastrophic uh, weather events because he's really concerned about tornadoes. It's not something that they have to deal with up there. And of course we get tornadoes in Tennessee. So I was looking at it and it turns out New Hampshire actually has the lowest um, natural disaster risk of any state in the nation. I had no idea. Like they don't have earthquakes. They don't have, you know, uh, hurricanes. They don't have tornadoes. They don't have drought, you know, any of your big major climate issues or your big major, you know, natural disasters that depending on where you are in the world, you have to deal with. Apparently New Hampshire doesn't really have to deal with them very much. So that was kind of interesting. And they don't get as much snow as you might think. Now they do get dumped on every now and again, but um, they actually don't get as much snow. This is not a commercial for New Hampshire. It's just, you know, something that's, that I relate to because I've got a buddy that lives up there. So then the next one is the Southeast. And the Southeast is a humid subtropical environment. Uh, You get hot summers, you get mild winters, lots of humidity is something to deal with. Um, That's something that can cause mold and mildew issues. And so, you know, something to just think about. And we we have a lot of really powerful insects here. Um, You know, mosquitoes are things we have to deal with. And you don't have to deal with that very much in some uh, climate areas of the United States. 
um, but you got a really long growing season. So, you know, that's good for, you know, different fruits. So, you know, where I am in Tennessee, you know, in Georgia and Alabama, you know, growing things like peaches is very easy because we've got a long growing season. Down in Florida, growing things like oranges is easy because they've got a long growing season. You know, those are things that you wouldn't even have a chance to do in the Northeast because you just don't have enough of the year that is, is generally above freezing nighttime temperatures. So then you've got the Midwest. You know, Midwest is a humid continental. They've got cold winters. They've got hot summers. And then the Midwest, the plains, I mean, the soils are absolutely fantastic. Um, it's very windy across the plains, though. You know, obviously, tornadoes is a big problem. But even outside of tornadoes, it's just very windy. You know, I, when I lived in Memphis, we used to joke that if you squinted, you could actually see the Rockies because... There wasn't really any elevation variation between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains. You know, in terms of, um, you know, when the wind starts blowing, it just keeps blowing across the plains. And so uh, that's just something you want to think about. If you're going to be gardening there, you need to have, you know, things around the outside of your garden that are going to protect it from the wind. So then you've got the southwest portion of the U.S. Uh, the southwest portion is all arid, semi-arid. And they have very, very hot summers and very mild winters. Uh, lots of sunshine. You know, if you're a type of person who want, wants to and is able to get creative about water usage and water collection and you want to run like fully off of solar power, then the Southwest is a good option for you. Uh, but again, because it's so hot and it's so dry, um, water can be a problem. Now, there are certain parts of the West or Southwest that are wetter than others. You know, you've got some uh, valleys that are just desert and you can't really do anything. And then you got some parts of the high desert that get, you know, a decent amount of, of precipitation. Although a lot of times that precipitation all comes in like a certain part of the year. So we, live, we, we own some land in West Texas and in West Texas, Chihuahuan Desert, they don't get a ton of, of precipitation. And what they do get is during monsoon season, which is like, you know, early winter to early spring. And so you've got to have the resources and the gumption to go claim and store that water when it's coming, uh, knowing that that's going to be your water source that you use throughout the rest of the year. Now, there are some areas in the Southwest that have aquifers that you can drill down into, but, um, you know, that can be prohibitively expensive as well. So just something to think about. Then you got the West. Um, the West is, you know, kind of varied. You've got uh, Mediterranean climate, uh, climate along the coast to Alpine climate up in the mountain areas, you know. So obviously, like, you go down to, like, San Diego, L.A., you can grow pretty much year-round. Uh, and then you go up to you know, the Sierra uh, Nevada mountains and, you know, you've got Alpine climates, completely different uh, things to deal with. Um, you know, the West is the only place I'm aware of in the U.S. where you can like ski in the morning and, and surf in the afternoon. So it's kind of crazy. I had a buddy that used to live in L.A. and he's like, if I wanted to on a really, really long day, I could get up in the morning and I could go, um, you know, like dune, uh, riding on four wheelers and side by sides. And then I could go ski at big bear. And then I could drive to the coast and, and surf at the sunset. 
and like that's the only place in America that that's any even remotely a possibility so you know that's an interesting thing there and staying away from the political side uh, and just thinking about you know cons out there you know wildfires and earthquakes right those are the the big deals and the other thing is is that while they do get precipitation because they don't do a great job in a lot of places of kind of managing the land uh, that precipitation when it comes can be disastrous it can cause flooding it can cause mudslides and things like that so uh, there's a really wide variation of uh, opportunity from a climate standpoint when you get out to the western u.s excuse me and like the the last one is the northwest right and so that's more of a marine environment like we're talking about like seattle and you know washington oregon area significant amount of rainfall okay uh water is not a problem in that area uh but it's overcast a lot of the year and um that can cause problems with solar right so um there are some parts of the northwest that get a significant amount of snowfall right so that's something that you need to think about and a lot like i said some people that's a con and some people that's a pro it's just something to think about as you're kind of walking through your thought process um but there are other parts of the pacific northwest like right over um the cascades that are you know, relatively dry. They're almost like a high desert environment. And so it's, again, there, there are, there are places where you can identify what do I want? What I, you know, how hot am I okay with dealing with? How cold am I okay with dealing with the duration for those different seasons? You know, do I want a lot of water? Do I want a little water? You know, there are just a ton of things to think about from a standpoint of climate, but, but the U S is blessed in that it doesn't really matter which one of those things is interesting to you. Um, excuse me. You can find it. You can absolutely find it in the United States. Okay. Um, and the other thing to think about is in each of those areas on a specific property, you are going to have microclimates. And so there are going to be areas in a, colder climate that gets decent sun that it's going to typically be warmer and some of those places exist naturally and sometimes you can actually you know build microclimates into your environment so think about harvesting um you know granite you know thick heavy dense rock um, and placing it in an area that's going to pick up a lot of sun throughout the middle of the day. Well, that area, once you've kind of have that built, is going to uh, attract and keep and radiate out heat uh, a lot better than other areas. So in a cold uh, climate, that would be a great way to harvest the radiant energy of the sun and then release it. But in a warm climate, that could be a detriment, you know. In a warm climate, you're going to want to look for areas that are cooler. You're going to want to look at areas where, like, frost pockets settle uh, in the in the winter, because uh, those are areas that, in the summer, you might be able to grow things that you otherwise would not be able to. You know, shade obviously is your friend in a hot area, uh, and it can be your enemy in a cold area. Uh, but and trees that provide shade can also be a windbreak. And again, sometimes that is good, and sometimes that is bad. Here's an interesting thought experiment. Building in wind funnels and wind breaks on your property 
uh, specifically to harvest, um, you know, dirt that's in the air. You know, if you're in an area where, you know, other people's properties kind of kick up dirt in little mini windstorms every now and again, uh, you could actually funnel that into a specific part of your property then build a windbreak to actually knock that stuff out of the air or to have it accumulate on vegetation. And then when it rains, the rain knocks it off the leaf. So it's almost like building a silt dam uh, above grade where you don't have water. So just, you know, something to think about. Um, and then when we talk about geography, you know, so geography would be mountains, plains, forests, coasts, you know, um, it, it's, it's just... You know, if we think about a mountainous climate, we think, oh, wow, beautiful views, right? Um, but sometimes it can get, it can be tougher to get to those areas. Uh, if you're in a mountainous climate that gets snow, then sometimes you aren't getting to or from that property. Um, again, plains is an area where it's going to be easier to uh, grow larger livestock, for example. Um but again, the wind, like the wind in the plains is, is, is a problem and can be a problem. In forests, uh, well, guess what? If we're using wood for heat, forests are our friend. We don't want to be in a place where we need to use forests for heat and we all we have is plains, right? Um, but that might be something that you need to clear out in order to accomplish the goals that you have for things like livestock, livestock and gar uh, gardening, you know? Um, and coastal areas, you know, uh, the coastal edge provides a bounty of opportunity for har harvesting uh, edibles, whether that be edible seaweed or edible shellfish or fish or whatever the case may be. But you're also going to have, you know, nor'easters or um, you're going to have, uh, you know, what do they call that down in the, the uh, what is it, Pineapple Express, right? The Pineapple Express, the, the super uh, floody rain events. Um, you know, in the plains, they don't have to worry about hurricanes, but they absolutely do on the coast. So, you know, again, there's trade-offs through those different areas. You know, a little bit about Don and I, uh, we both grew up in Georgia, you know, so we're used to hot, humid summers and mild winters with the occasional tornado and ice storm scattered in. Um, but Don and I have actually... You know, we've been married for a little over 20 years now, and on average, we have moved like every two years, you know, and it wasn't until we moved back to Tennessee that we were like sitting down and doing the math and, and figuring that out, and I was like, wow, it didn't really, to me, it doesn't seem that way because moving is not a big deal because I did it so much growing up. To Dawn, it is a big deal because like she moved twice in her life before we got married, um, and then on top of that, in my career, I have worked in like 44 of the 50 states, you know, so I'm like, I've never been to Alaska, never been to North Dakota, I've got a few like New England states that I haven't been to, um, you know, but I actually worked up in St. Paul, Minnesota before where like the high one day when I was there was like negative nine. I'd been in Waukesha, Wisconsin before when there was like 20 inches of snow on the ground. Um, I've worked in Hawaii. I've worked in California, northern and southern. I've worked in Oregon, Washington, uh, Florida, Texas. Um, you know, so I've worked in like all of the climates and all of the different geographies that we have in this country. And honestly, I love Tennessee. I love 
where we are. I like Western North Carolina a lot as well. Like my favorite part of Tennessee is East Tennessee. I love the mountains. Um, I love Western North Carolina. I don't like the politics of North Carolina. I prefer the politics of Tennessee, and so that's why I will I would you know consider moving all the way up to the very edge of the Tennessee North Carolina border, but not across it. You know what I mean? Um, so you know something. Again, you know, we talked about in the last podcast building your list of haves for uh, your property search, you know, and, and the next thing is kind of taking and sitting down and saying, okay, well, what are my weather must haves? Like, what are the things that I really want or are, you know, absolutely not going to deal with as it relates to weather? I know people that homestead in the desert and they, it's a hard life, it's tough. You know, but they make it happen and they accept and embrace the challenge of doing that. But I know a lot of people wouldn't even consider that. And then think about geography, right? Think about, you know, do I want the mountains? Do I want the plains? Do I want coastal? Do I want, uh, what do I want? And, And what am I willing to deal with? as a part of that, you know, putting those two things together and and understanding the interaction, uh, is important, you know, understanding the challenges of these different, um, combinations is important. And, and again, I want you to do this before you actually start looking for land. I want you to do this before you've got that list. Think about those combinations. Think about the life that you want to live once you're on the land. Think about how you want to develop the property once you're on the land. And once you have those data points, you know, then you can start really looking. So the next podcast is when we're going to start talking about strategies for going and finding the land, you know, uh, where to go, how to go about it, little tips and tricks that I've picked up over the years um, that you're not going to hear about from, from other people. Like I have gone out and I have tried before I wrote this ebook. And before I started recording this podcast series, I personally went and said, is there a market for this? Because, you know, I don't necessarily want to spend my time developing content that where there's already saturation. And there are some things that I do that I have not seen anyone do. I've bought eBooks on this subject. I have checked out people's video content on this subject. And there are a lot of things that I do that I have not seen anyone talking about. And so we're going to start getting into some of that nuts and bolts on the next podcast. And, um, you know, if you're a type of person that's in the market for raw off-grid land. And again, the reason why we're talking about this is it's cheap. We're talking about low barrier to entry. You know, I know I, I know a lot of people my age and younger the millennials, the Gen Zers, they're talking about how hard it is to live the lifestyle that they want because the boomers have, you know, acquired all the wealth, hung on to it, and then um, made everything more expensive at the same time, you know. So they're, they're not opening the pathways that allow for career advancement. They're not allow, opening the pathways that allow for asset acquisition, and it, it's just so hard, you know, harder than it's ever been, blah, 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 blah. Look, there are opportunities out there. And what we're talking about in this podcast series is how to go out and get those opportunities. Now, I know this podcast and the last podcast were really more like the pre-work. 
And But the reason for that is it's so important. You don't want to end up on a property that's cheap but has all these problems. You know, again, I've talked about people that are out in the desert homesteading. I've met a whole lot more people that are out in the home or that, that, that aren't in the desert homesteading that bought the property because it was, you know, $300 an acre in Taos, New Mexico or whatever. And went out there and said, holy crap, like I am not prepared. I can't do this. Well, now they've dropped their nest egg on a property on 40 acres that they can't develop. You know what I mean? So doing these couple things early, really thinking through what you can and can't deal with, that is the key. That is the the magic sauce because I'd much rather you end up on three acres that has the things that you need to be successful than have a hundred acres of land that you don't know how and are not prepared and incapable of developing. So a little bit of a shorter podcast today. I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up there because I don't want to get into the nuts and bolts of actually finding the land and starting to develop it. I want you guys to go through this process of making these lists thinking about yourself, thinking about your family, thinking about your partners and, you know, getting ready to start looking for land after you know what you want, right? Like what's the point of going out and test driving a truck if you're literally never going to put anything in the bed of a truck and you know that, right? All right. So with that, I'm going to drop it. I am going to drop my, um, link to where the ebook is. It's hmhs.info. Uh, email me at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmyhomestead.com if you have questions, comments, or concerns. and uh, Or if you've got anything specific on this topic that you want me to cover, if, like you're interested. And you can you can already own land and just be looking for like the next step. I mean, we do that all the time. You know, I have been actively in the land acquisition market since I bought my first piece of property. And so, um, you know, you don't don't necessarily be like, well, I have property, so this isn't really relevant to me. Um, you might find that if you go through this process, you have a property that's really, really beneficial to someone else to the tune of you might be able to sell it and get what you really want for less money. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thanks for joining me and we'll talk to you next time.